any time that we're able to uh, gather as the body of Christ, it's a wonderful, uh, glorious moment. Because again, as we were singing, I exalt thee, or we exalt thee, uh, that is our goal and that is our aim, uh, to exalt the Lord God above everything. The wonderful thing that as we gather is God has not just left us to try to figure out things and how to follow him, but he's given us his word. And from start to finish, it's a wonderful word that we have for life and for godliness, for instruction. So this morning, we turn our attention as we do every time we gather to God's word. And I'd ask you to turn to Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, I don't know if this, uh, how it marks you when you were a kid or if you have children, but if you uh, watch how children are with money, it is something that's quite fascinating. There are some children that will be given money, maybe for a chore, maybe for some work, maybe a grandparent or a parent, someone gives them some money, and for some it burns a hole in their pocket, and they want to leave immediately and go to some store and purchase something. For others, they want to just save it, and they love to go and open their treasure box and just look at their money day in and day out and count it over and over and over, and they do nothing with it. And then there's some who are very methodical with what they do with their money, and I was reminded of a friend of mine that uh, we uh, grew up in church and school together, and I want to say it was somewhere around 6th or 7th grade that he would show up to school, and it started by uh, him selling beef jerky, and it was beef jerky that he made, and so kids would buy the beef jerky, and then what he did is he took that money and he began to buy boxes of candy bars. And what he would do is he'd show up on days in junior high when we had uh, track meets or sports events, and he would sell more than the snack shack would because he would sell it for cheaper than them. And then he would take that money and he began to move into another uh, form of business and he bought gumball machines and candy machines and he would go to restaurants and other places and he would ask them if he could place it there and they said, sure. And he was making all kinds of money in junior high and in high school. I was like, where do you get this money? And it's this sense of, well, I have some, I made some more. And then he eventually got into used cars and he was fair, he was good and did that for a while. But I was always fascinated with the way that he would have something that would, and he would make more with it. He knew how to use his money and to make it profitable for the things that he desired to do. And in a similar fashion, Jesus has a parable for his disciples then and for us now to look at, which is a description of the kingdom of God. And he answers a question that they have regarding the kingdom of God. And the big idea from the text is this. We must strive to be faithful servants who glorify God by stewarding well what he has entrusted to us. Look with me at Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive it for himself. 
a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, are you, you, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The word of God. Father, we again ask in this moment that you would work upon our hearts. We ask that this truth that you have given to us, this parable spoken by your son, that would be something that we learn from, that would move our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray you would give us great understanding and you would cause our hearts to be ones of evaluation today. That we would evaluate our heart, that we would repent of sin, that we would believe in you and that we would live a life that is glorifying to you. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of the word in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have not been with us, we've been going through the life of Christ in the gospel according to Luke. And uh, recently in chapter 18, we saw an account in which Jesus told his disciples for the third time, we're going to Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. And then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And it was the third time that he had told them that. And specifically, Luke says they did not understand that that meaning was hidden from them. And it helps us when you look at why Jesus tells this parable before he enters Jerusalem. He says they, he told them because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. You see, the disciples, they had already called him Messiah. And they were picturing going into Jerusalem in which the Messiah would instantly set up his kingdom. And that the new heavens, the new earth, all these things would be made new. And it would happen as soon as they get there. <clears throat> They did not understand what Jesus had been preparing them, what Jesus had been teaching them. And so he says, I'm going to tell you this parable so that you will understand more about the kingdom of God. 
And so what we'll look at here is the nobleman, and we'll look at the enemy, and we'll look at the servants here in this text. If you would look at, with me at verses 11 through 12, we see a nobleman. There's a nobleman who went, goes to a far country for himself to get, uh, receive a kingdom. Now let me ask you a question. When Jesus speaks about the nobleman here, who does the nobleman in the parable represent? Jesus Christ. The nobleman is Jesus, and Jesus is the one who is crowned king. After Jesus Christ was born, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, burying the sins of his people, God the Father poured out his wrath on his son at the cross. Jesus Christ died there, and he was buried, and on the third day rose again. And then for a period of time, his disciples and his followers were with him. They ate with him. They touched him. They listened to his teaching. And then they saw him ascend into heaven where Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the father. Right now he's ruling and he's reigning. And right now he is our great high priest who is interceding for his people. Jesus Christ is the king and he will return to bring a fulfillment or a completion to his kingdom, something which we would title as the second coming of Christ. Jesus Christ has promised that he will return. The scriptures tell us that he will come again one day in the clouds like a thief in the night. It will be a surprise to all. The word of God titles the second coming as the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. It's titled as the great and awesome day of the Lord or your version in the in in that prophet says that the terrible day of the Lord. It's grace, great and awesome for all of God's glory returning here. Christ, the king. But it's also a terrible day because the judgment of God will be upon all people, specifically those who are not followers of his. And that is why for them it is a terrible day of judgment. But there will be a day in which the nobleman returns, a day in which the servants will not expect the nobleman. And that nobleman, Jesus Christ, will return and it will be a surprise to all at the moment that he comes. The nobleman in this parable gives some responsibilities and he has some enemies and he has and also he also brings people to an account after he returns. And so if you look at verses 14 and verse 27, I want us to reflect for a moment on what he says about some enemies of the nobleman. The nobleman has some enemies. You may think, oh, I have an enemy, or I have enemies, or you've had enemies. Well, this is something to pay attention to, because in verse 14, it says, the noblemen, the citizens of his country or kingdom, it says that they hate him. They hate the nobleman, and they send a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Some would say, who are the enemies in this parable? Well, some would say, oh, it's, well, the, the Jews, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and they hate him and they crucify him. Well, that definitely were enemies of Jesus. Some may remember back to Jesus' birth as he's speaking to them. 
Herod the Great, uh, he had a son named Archelaus, and he uh, entitled his kingdom to his son. And Archelaus, though, had to go to Rome uh, to ask for that uh, power, in the sense, because he had a brother named Antipas, who uh, many of the Jewish leaders, they supported, and they objected Archelaus uh, being in that place. So they sent a delegation to argue. Maybe that was upon the minds of the people as Jesus was using and teaching this parable. If you read in chapter 19, you see that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, riding uh, into town. Everyone is hailing him king. They are praising him as king of kings. They are praising him as Messiah. They're waving the palm branches. Hosanna. And he enters in to only a few days later have enemies who would show great hatred for him. Crucify him. That's what they called out. Hostility was very evident. That hostility, not only in the Jews who came against Jesus, which surprised Pilate, who called him and said he's the king of the Jews. That hostility is the exact same hostility of all of the nobleman's enemies. And if the nobleman is Jesus Christ, then every single one of his enemies has hostility in their heart against Jesus Christ. And if you have not been with us over the past weeks, every single week, we have seen that scripture says that we are born as enemies of God. Go, whoa. Enemies of God? Hostility? I wasn't there. I didn't yell, crucify him. Well, Scripture is very clear about those who are hostile towards God, God's enemies, and it is everyone who is born into this world. Because none of us, and I know you may argue with me, you can argue with me after the service. Some of you would argue with me that you willingly got rid of the hostility in your heart and you submitted to the kingship and the authority of Jesus Christ and you just did it by some type of power because of some way that you were awakened, that you saw something in life and you realized, I've got to change my life. The cross is wonderful and I need Jesus. You're an enemy of God. There's no way that you turn from an enemy of God to an adopted child of God unless God Almighty does a work in your heart through the Holy Spirit, John chapter 3, and He causes you to be born again so your eyes open you say, God is glorious. The cross is a wonderful thing, even though it's a horrible picture of what happened in our eyes. It's a wonderful thing because Jesus Christ died on the cross in my place for my sins. And I have forgiveness in his shed blood. Turn to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight. says in verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And if you read the context of what is written there in chapter 8, it is a clear reference to all who are not believers that are living in the flesh. They have not been saved. And so what you have a picture of is hostility towards God before salvation. And that is for any and everyone who has life and death. You cannot please God. You cannot approach God without faith. As the writer of Hebrews says, James chapter 4, turn to James chapter 4. As James writes, he says this in verse 4 You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you hear that? Do you hear the words of Scripture this morning? Do you see the warnings to all who are enemies of God? You do not want to be an enemy of God in the end. You want to be a child of God. Turn back to our text. The reason why you want to be a child of God is we see in the parable in Luke 19, verse 27, that God will put all of his enemies to shame. When he returns in his glory, you can't go back. There are no do-overs in life. Look at verse 27. It says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Some people read that passage and say, that is a horrible verse. That's a terrible verse. Why would that describe God? That's got to be wrong. You ever heard people describe things like that? When we read scripture about God's wrath and punishment for eternity on all who reject him. There is no escaping The judgment of God, there is no escaping the wrath of God for all who are enemies of him. It very plainly gives us a picture of what we've seen for numerous weeks as we've studied um, in Luke. There is no escaping the wrath of God. There is no annihilation in the sense that, well, God will have love and mercy on people. And once they uh, die, if they haven't rejected, they'll just cease to exist. There's no eventual salvation. There is no universalism. There is no purgatory for all who are enemies of God. When he returns and die in their sin, the wrath of God remains on them for eternity. And it's conscious and it's in hell forever. And some of you say, whoa, pastor, this is a heavy thing today. It's a real thing. And it's in the text for us to bear and not to try to excuse or try to make some way to make things fit. It's the truth of God's word. And so the question is this, will you repent of your sins and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you would be changed from an enemy of God to an adopted child of God? With a great inheritance for all eternity being with Jesus. And again, some would still argue, Pastor, I am not that bad. 
I am not a bad person. Aren't we all God's children? There's no way. We'll turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Wonderful text. It says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how or much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Again, the establishment that we are enemies of God and that the only thing that can save us from the wrath of God is Jesus Christ to be reconciled by him, his work, his shed blood. And it comes again through repentance and belief in Jesus Christ as Lord. This, though, is something for you to pay attention, is that God has enemies, and we all begin as one of them. Let's now look at the servants. Look at verses 13 through 26. There's some servants in this parable. There's 10 servants in verse 13. And he gives each of them one mina, three months uh, salary. And he says, you know what? Here you go. I'm leaving for a while. I want you to engage in business until I come back. And what we don't see here, but we see when he returns, is he sets some high expectations for what he expects of those he gives a mina to. The word there to engage in business, it means to do trade. It means to be engaged in business. But he doesn't say how to do it. And so understand this. The point of this parable about the kingdom of God is not to do business, but to do stewardship, to be a good steward, to be found a faithful steward of God. And therefore, the servants are given minas with instruction to steward it. And the responsibility is very great. And it's based on things like your natural abilities, personality, life circumstances, who you are, but examples specifically of some of what those minas can be. Everything you own is a mina that's been entrusted to you. Your money, your home, your cars, your clothes, Even the most impoverished people in America are uh, rich compared to a majority of our world. So there's physical and there's material things that we have. Some of you have been given abilities and strengths and knowledge and things to use. You're supposed to steward those. Maybe uh, your mina is uh, for if you, you have a family, you have children, you have a spouse. For others, it's again, it's uh, schoolwork or the work that's entrusted to you. You've been given responsibilities. Christians have been given spiritual gifts. The greatest mina, though, which God gives, is the mina of the responsibility to obey God. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. <clears throat> and people will be held to a high return, a high, a high expectation when Christ returns. There's a standard he has set, and he calls for a good return on his mina. Look at verse 15 back in the text in Luke 19. <clears throat> it says, When he returned, the nobleman, 
having received the kingdom, so he is the king, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. There's a long period of time. We're in that period now. We are waiting and longing for the return of the nobleman, our master, Jesus Christ. There should be an expectancy in us for him to come in the clouds in all of his glory. But we must know as we wait for his glorious appearing, there's a settling of accounts that happens at his return. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As Paul writes to the church, if you find yourself as a follower of Christ, you are a part of the church. Here is one description of this account that's given in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11. It says, For no one can lay a foundation other than which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation... With gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, there is a day of judgment in one sense, a day of an account, not the great white throne judgment, because God has already justified his people through faith in Jesus Christ. He has already sealed the hearts of his believers by the Holy Spirit. He has set out that his people will enter his kingdom and receive his inheritance. But there will be a day That if you call yourself a follower of Christ, that you will stand before your Lord, your Savior, your Master, the nobleman, Jesus. And you will say, Jesus, here is the mina that you gave me. And if you reflect on that, that's a very sobering reality to think that Christ has entrusted to all of his people certain things to steward. And there's an expectation for how we return his mina. In this parable, Jesus points out two types of servants. Look with me at verses 15 through 19. The first ones he describes are faithful, good servants. If you look there at verse 15, um, It says there, when he returned, he orders the servants. In verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said, well done, good servant. You like that return? Is that a good return? He gives him ten back. I mean, again, a mina, as Jesus uses the parable, uh, three months of wages. And this man has taken it and turned it into a ten times that. And he says, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second one came saying, Lord, your mind has made five. And he says, you're to be over five of those cities. There's a high return 
for those who steward the minas that God has given them. And so I want to make sure that you hear clearly what Christ is teaching. There is a difference between stewardship and what we would say tithing or giving money in the church. Stewardship involves giving financially. But stewardship is all of your life. You have to give an account for every single aspect of your life. All of the blessings, some of you would would, would think and reflect and go, I don't have many minas. God hasn't given me this or that. And I have bad health. And so I can't do this. And we have these types of things here and there. and, and, And I don't have this money. And I don't have this home. And I don't have these gifts and strengths. And what those are, are excuses. And they are lies that you believe. God has entrusted you with his mina in the sense of his good gifts. The book of James tells us that every single thing that has come from heaven is from God and it's good and it's glorious. So everything that you have, even bad health, is a gift from God. You go, what? All right. Well, another day we get more into that. But specifically, the trials and problems and physical problems that we have in this world are things that we do go through. Because there's a fallen world. Or if you read the book of Job, you know that Satan can afflict those things if he's given permission. But in the midst of those health problems and those struggles, God uses them to teach us. God uses them to disciple us. God uses them to sanctify us. And he says here... That faithful, good servant here that is, recall these two, they give a great return. They have been faithful. That is the servant who you should be and need to be. You need to be brought from being an enemy to being a faithful, good servant. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter three, verse 13 and 14. It says this, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're longing for and waiting for. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, these be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. I pray that all who are faithful servants and stewards of Jesus Christ, that at the day we stand before him, we would hear his response to these servants. Well done. Well done being faithful. That's what we should long for. That should be our goal. That should be our aim. The tragic part of this parable is in verses 20 through 26. You have unfaithful, wicked servants. The third servant shows up and he did not conduct business as was required of him. And he says, hey, 
I took the mina, I hid it in a handkerchief, and I know hid it somewhere. You know what, master, nobleman, here, here's your coin back. Look at the text here. It says in verse 20, Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in the handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Do you hear the way that he describes the nobleman? Do you see what the, uh, the wicked, unfaithful servant says? He says, you're a severe man. And the word there, it it means strict or holding to high standards or requirements. That's not a bad thing. We should set high standards. We should have some strict things in areas of our life. And so he says, hey, you're a severe, you're a strict man. You have a high standard. And yet his words, look at those words there in, in 20 and 21, 22. Those words condemn him. Because if he truly believed about the nobleman and what he states, he would have taken the mina and put it in the bank. He would have gotten interest. He would have done something with it. But his argument is inexcusable. It's foolishness. It's actually ridiculous what he says. And in a sense, what he's doing, he is lying to cover up his laziness. He's lying to cover up the fact that he chooses to disobey his master. And at the same time, I reflected this week and and I was reminded because the way that he describes the nobleman. Lately, in the past couple months. Members of our church have talked with me about God in general. And they'll ask questions in uh, email or text or in person. And the questions that I get at times, sometimes I'm like, you know this. And I realize they don't know this. And repeatedly over and over and over and over again, these questions and these concerns and these challenges is blatantly against God are because I believe most people do not truly know God's word and therefore they do not truly know God and his attributes and who he is and what the word of God says about who God is and how he works in our life. And so some think God is just some wrathful, judging person. You ever heard that before by people? You maybe before you became a Christian or if you're not a Christian, you're an enemy of God today. You see God as wrathful and judgmental. Others, though, only think of God as loving and merciful and forgiving. We don't want to think about this other stuff. Some of God's attributes are clear that we know from Scripture. God is holy. God is good. He is righteous God is loving. He's forgiving. But God is also completely just. He also pours out his wrath upon sin. The scriptures teach us that he is perfect and he is sovereign and complete control of all things. And so God will not be controlled by. He will not be swayed by us. Anything you say is not going to change God or make him change. He does not change. And what God does, anything and everything he does, 
anything and everything he allows are all for his glory. I know that some of us think this, but God doesn't need you or me. He doesn't need anyone. God is complete. He doesn't need you or I to give him glory because he has all the glory. He, doesn't, he did not need to give you life. He did not need to create this universe or say, let there be light and make the earth. He did not have to create mankind or the animals because God is complete in all of his glory and splendor. He doesn't need you. So if you've ever thought that, go, wow, okay, this gives me a different perspective on life. He's the creator. He's given me life. I need to give him all the glory. He's given me a mina. I need to steward it and do that rightly. And I believe that a correct understanding of God and who he is and the way that he works helps the follower of Christ to walk rightly. And the Holy Spirit convicts us and teaches us from his word and moves us to walk in a right manner. The bottom line, though, here is if you look at this text is the wicked servant did not obey the master. He says he doesn't he didn't know the master is the is the reality here. And he therefore then is rejected by the nobleman. He's rejected by the master. Look back in our text here. Verse 22, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank in my, at my coming? I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And then they complained and they said to him, Lord... He has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The wicked servant is rejected. And when you read scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Revelation to Genesis, the wicked person is the wicked person. The wicked person is the person who dies in their sins apart from God. There is no other title. Some people try to figure out, well, is this one of the kind of good servants? He didn't quite obey in that First Corinthians 3 passage we read. To... No, the wicked servant is the enemies who was against the nobleman. They do not obey. They do not fear God. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what they do is the same response of the wicked man here. And Luke 13, as we read a while back, it says, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Or as the book of Matthew says, um, depart from me. I I don't even know you, who you are. So the question is this. We come to the end. The closing is this. Who are you in the parable? Are you the enemy? Are you the faithful servant? Are you the unfaithful servant who is the enemy of God? One last passage. Again, a sobering passage. And you you might say, well, this whole sermon has been sobering. I think, and I'll just say this, I, my zeal in these things is my desire 
that you would be saved. Amen. Praise God. And so sometimes, I know you, I raise my voice. He's yelling again. Um, I, I don't try to manufacture these things. It's just what comes from my heart because I read passages like Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. It says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And the reason I try to point out these scriptures to you is that you would stop looking at the latest Facebook feed and try to quote some statement and say, well, isn't that in the Bible? That you would stop thinking, well, I think the Bible says this, but that you would know what the Bible says because you've been in it. And the Holy Spirit would do a great and mighty work in your life. And so only a repentant heart, only a belief in Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, can, re- can, can change the outcome of your eternity. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all will die and be cast to hell without being reconciled by the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is reigning in heaven now. He's in glory. He is the king and he's returning. And it will be a glorious day and it will be a glorious eternity. There will be this joy that is never ending and ever growing. And for all who are found as his servants, as faithful servants, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And I would say this in closing. If you are a follower of Christ now, you need to ask this question. How am I being a faithful steward? How am I faithfully stewarding the mina that has been given to me? And I would look at your time. I would look at your talents. And I would look at your treasures. And I would ask yourself, what are you doing with them? As the worship team comes up, all who are here and hearing my voice, if you are far from Christ, today is the day of salvation, that you need to believe in Christ, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would do that work in you. Father, we ask that in this moment, that you would be glorified, that you would use your word to give us a seriousness in our hearts about how we are living every moment of our life for you. Help us to examine our time. Help us to examine our talents. Help us to examine everything that you have given us that we would give you a return for your glory. And Father, would you save those who are far from you, who are enemies? Would you save them and make them your own? In Jesus' name, amen.